Welcome to First Presbyterian Church in North Palm Beach, Florida. We exist to help people pursue and share gospel-driven lives. We hope whether you're investigating faith, a seasoned follower of Jesus, and anywhere in between, this podcast helps you connect with Jesus. Today, we are finishing the series that we've been in through the fall months. We've been doing a series called On the Road, in which we've been exploring many of the journeys people take in the story of the Bible in which they encounter God and are changed by God. Today, we're going to be listening to the journey that Jesus takes from the empty tomb after his resurrection to his ascension. So today's scripture reading is going to be from Luke chapter 24. It'll be verses 36 through 53. I'm going to pray for us as we prepare to listen to God's word and then we'll listen to Luke together to color in a little bit of context for you. The selection that we're going to listen to occurs on the evening of the first Easter and it picks up as several of Jesus' friends are discussing with quite a bit of alarm that a couple of them think that they've seen Jesus alive somehow. So I'm going to pray, and then we'll listen to what happens together. Let's pray. Father, may your word be our rule, your spirit our teacher, and the glory of your son Jesus Christ our single concern, in whose name we pray. Amen. Friends, listen to the book that we love from Luke 24. While they were talking about this, Jesus himself came and stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. They were startled and frightened and thought that they had seen a ghost. He said to them, why are you frightened? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? Look at my hands and my feet. See that it is I, myself. Touch me and see. For a ghost does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. While in their joy, they were disbelieving and still wondering. He said to them, have you anything to eat here? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate it in their presence. Then he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And said to them, thus it is written that the Son of Man must suffer and rise from the dead on the third day, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins is to be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. And now I'm sending upon you what my Father promised. So stay here in the city until you have been clothed with power from on high. Then he led them out as far as Bethany, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. While he was blessing them, he withdrew from them and was carried up into heaven. They worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy, 
and were continually in the temple blessing God. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I have long been a fan of the, the Irish rock band U2. And a number of years ago now, they, on the, the 18th anniversary of when they first formed uh, their band, they released an album made up of many of their most prominent chart-topping singles that was called U2-18. And I didn't know it when I picked up the album, but after I listened to it, I realized that they had actually included a couple of new songs on it as well, too. And one of them was a song that I found fascinating that was called A Window in the Skies. If you watch the video, it stitches together pieces of video footage from many of the 20th century's most significant rock and pop and jazz and, and rap acts in a way that makes it seem like all of these different, all of these different performers are singing U2's songs. So there's little clips of Frank Sinatra and Elvis and the Man in Black himself, there's Nina Simone and the Wu-Tang Clan and, and the Sex Pistols and all, all, these, all these various bands that they, that they stitch together little bits of their music to make it seem as if they're singing this U2 song together. And the beginning of the, the, beginning of the song goes like this. It's actually a reference to the Easter story. It begins, begins this way. The rule has been disproved. The stone... It has been moved. The grave is now a groove, and all debts are removed. Can't you see what love has done, what it's doing to me? This is, I think, a, a fitting description of what has happened in the world on Easter Sunday. The long rule of sin and death in the world, thanks to Jesus, has now been disproved. The stone marking the grave of Jesus and the end of his life and the inevitable end of all of our lives has now been moved. All debts are now, thanks to Jesus, removed. But here's the thing. Sometimes it's hard to see what love has done. That was the case for Jesus' first friends on the night of the first Easter. And telling the truth, that's the case for you and me here and now, millennia later. And so this morning, we're going to consider together the ascension and the rule of Jesus and take in with one another just what love has done. Now, there are, there are three events in the story of Jesus' life that get a lot of publicity. His birth, which we'll celebrate in a month and a half or so at Christmas time, and then his death and his resurrection, which we celebrate at Easter. But the ascension, not so much. We don't throw parties or gives gifts to our children or wear weird sweaters or drink way too much eggnog over the ascension of Jesus. But I think that that's a shame, actually. Because in many ways, the ascension of Jesus is, is like the spark plug that combusts and releases 
all of what Jesus accomplishes for us and for the universe and is living and dying and rising and lets it loose with healing and power and love into our lives and into the world. Oftentimes, if you're somebody who, who you, you grew up in a, in, a, in a church context and you hear the story of Jesus' ascension, it's easy to just assume that it means that Jesus is like going into space somewhere. And we Christians, we don't help ourselves with these kind of perceptions. There's even in some churches a stained glass that depicts this event in the life of our Lord, and it just has like the feet of Jesus peeking down from the top of the stained glass window. But that's actually not what Jesus' ascension means at all. I want you to listen to a, a biblical, biblical thinker and theologian named N.T. Wright as he describes what the ascension really means. This is what he says. He says, we have supposed that the first century Christians thought of heaven as a place up in the sky within our space-time universe and that they imagined Jesus as a kind of primitive space traveler heading upwards to sit beside God somewhere a few miles away up in the sky. And we have told ourselves this story about the early Christians within an implicit modernist framework in which God and the world are in any case a long way away from one another so that if Jesus has gone to be with God, whatever that means, we understand that he has left us behind, that he's now far away in another dimension altogether. And we have then thought that the point of the story is that we too will one day go off into this same place called heaven, leaving earth behind for good. But this way of understanding the ascension is quite simply wrong on all counts. The early Christians, like their Jewish contemporaries, saw heaven and earth as the overlapping and interlocking spheres of God's good creation, with the point being that heaven is the control room from which earth is run. To say that Jesus is now in heaven is to say three things. First, that he is present with his people everywhere, no longer confined to one space-time location within earth, but certainly not absent. Second, that he is now the managing director of this strange show called Earth. Though like many incoming chief executives, he has quite a lot to do to sort it out and turn it around. And third, that he will one day bring heaven and earth together as one, becoming therefore personally present to us once more within God's new creation. The Bible doesn't say much about our going to heaven. It says a lot about heaven, and particularly heaven's chief inhabitant coming back to earth. Now, there's a, there's a lot to digest there, but I, I love the way that he says that. When we say that Jesus is now in heaven or in the heavens, what we mean is not that Jesus is gone, but that Jesus is in God's dimension of reality, that Jesus now sits in the corner office of all creation, that he now sits in the CEO's chair, if you like, of the universe. That's what love has done. And so I want to simply, for a few moments together, invite you to stand in that room with Jesus and his first friends and then, and then walk together with them up the steep slope of the Mount of Olives to the little, little village of Bethany to explore what Jesus' ascension means for us. What happens in your life and what happens in our community when you really see what love has done. 
I want to suggest three things. That you experience trust, that you experience mission, and that you experience blessing. Trust, mission, and blessing. Now, as the story that we heard together begins, the disciples on the evening of the first Easter are having this conversation with quite a bit of alarm because a couple of them think that they've somehow seen Jesus. And then, out of the blue, suddenly, somehow, Jesus is, is there. The disciples, they're, they're slack-jawed and terrified. Surely this is a ghost, or they're, or they're seeing things or something. But here's what I want to help you pay attention to. How does Jesus respond to their doubts in this moment? He engages them. He moves them from doubt to trust. I want to help you see this, particularly if you're somebody for whom you're, you're exploring Christian faith or, or you're, you know, somebody's been bugging you to be here this morning and you're pretty skeptical of all this stuff, or you've, or you've been away from faith or church for, for some time. I think that this is especially helpful to notice. Jesus here does not turn up in this room and in response to his disciples' confusion and disbelief, say to them, you fools, and like zap them or something like that. Jesus offers them a look at his hands and his feet. He engages their questions and misunderstanding. I think that that's, I think that that's particularly helpful to notice as we navigate what to do with our own questions as well, too. King Jesus is a king that welcomes questions, that engages us in our doubts. This is what Jesus did for those first disciples, and it's what Jesus, I'll tell you as a Christian pastor, promises to do with your questions as well, too. We want to be a community where you can do just that, where you can, you can come with your real questions about God, life, faith, Jesus, and not be worried that as you bring those questions to this place that somebody's going to pull the fire alarm on you or something like that. This is a doubt-friendly community. A place where you don't have to have all the answers. Where you can come with your honest questions and discover Jesus engaging them. This is also a place where, where you can come with with your fear or your suspicion or your anxiety as well, too. I know that in a room like this, there's, there's numbers of us who are here for whom, you know, you've, you've really soured on the Christian church in some way or another. After decades and decades of, of experiencing you know, the, the sexual abuses in the Roman Catholic part of the church, all the various and sundry you know, political and sexual and power scandals of the different parts of the Protestant part of the church, now, there's, an awful, there's an awful lot of us and an awful lot of people in the time in which we live who are deeply suspicious of the church. There's some of you, who've been, you've been hurt in real ways by a spiritual leader of some kind or another. So if that's you, here's what I want to invite you to do. I want to invite you to see King Jesus in this moment. And to see that the king of the universe bears on his body the scars of his suffering love for you.
You may not feel like you can trust religious institutions or professional religious leaders. But you can trust King Jesus. You can trust and follow a king with scars. That's what you experience when you see what love has done. Now, second, when you, see king, when you see King Jesus, when you see what God's love has done in the universe, it creates a sense of mission in your life. Uh, Jesus reminds his followers here of what he has been teaching them over the last years. And in particular, he opens the scriptures with them again and shows them how the long winding story of God's work in the world has rushed to its climax in Jesus dying and rising. He shares with his followers again that this is where the story's been going the whole time. And that now, every, every city and town and village in the world and the whole creation itself needs to know just what love has done. Everybody everywhere now can know that death does not have the last word in the world, that God has acted once and for all to heal and to remake broken people and a broken world because of Jesus. And he commissions his deeply flawed, dysfunctional followers to go and bear that news. And friends, that is what Jesus is still doing with deeply flawed and deeply dysfunctional followers like us as well, too. Uh, there's a fourth century Christian leader and thinker named Augustine of Hippo, who was a North African, North African church leader, who in a sermon that he preached on this story says that Jesus appeared here to his disciples to provide them with a sample of resurrection. Now, I love how he says that. Jesus here is giving his disciples a sample of the resurrection that God accomplishes for all of his people and for the whole creation. And in turn, as followers of Jesus, God sends us to also live our lives as a sample of resurrection as well too. As a sample of what it looks like when the living love of Almighty God transforms a person through Jesus. This is, this is why as a community we care about doing things like, you know, we, like loading up buses of people week after week to go and do disaster relief in Fort Myers. You know, this, is why we, this is why we link arms with the Christian community around the world to start new, start new communities of Jesus. This is why we, we care about helping one another tell the stories of, of how God's grace is, changes us and puts us back together in Jesus because we want to live as a community as a sample of resurrection. So maybe, maybe one question to carry with you as we go from worship this morning is what could it look like in my life this week in the, in the place where I work and in the, in the people that I'm going to be serving in the neighborhood I live in and the building I live in what would it look like to in some way live intentionally as a sample of Jesus' resurrection and what that does in a life. A mission is what happens in your life when you see what love has done for the world in Jesus. And lastly, I want you to notice that you also experience blessing as well too. Now, as we follow Jesus, he leads his friends outside the city walls of Jerusalem. They climb the steep slope of the Mount of Olives right back to the place where Jesus began his cosmic combat with sin and death. 
And when Jesus takes his friends back to that same place, Luke tells us that he lifts his hands and he blesses them. And then as he's giving them his blessing, he passes into the heavens. Now, when we hear that word blessing, we, we oftentimes misunderstand it. We think of that as a, as a polite religious term. Or, you know, if you're, you know, if you're you know, trying to show the world how, how amazing your life is on Instagram, you, you, know, you, you show pictures of yourself in beautiful moments, doing beautiful things, and then you, you tag it, hashtag blessed. Or, you know, we use it as a, as a, as a southernism. I'm from the Northeast, and when you're driving on the highway and you get cut off in traffic, the customary thing to do is to scream obscenities out the vehicle at the other driver. But if you're in the American South and that same thing happens on the highway, what do you do? You roll down the window and you say between gritted teeth, bless their heart. Just bless their heart. The word blessing in reality in the scriptures is loaded with, with meaning and beauty. In the very beginning of, of the story of the scriptures, God creates a cosmos that's brimming with harmony and possibility and life. And after creating a good world, the biblical narrator tells us that God blesses it. So in that sense, God, God is lavishing his love on the world. God is willing goodness and life to the world that he made. And then, as the human community, we turn our backs on our creator it's then that, that cursing seeps into the water of the world, so to speak. Violence and injustice and alienation. If you remember one of the earliest stories of a person's journey that we considered, God then comes to a man named Abraham, and he promises him that, that if Abraham walks with him, that, that through his family, God's going to bring his blessing back to a now-cursed world. God will one day again lavish his love and life and goodness on a world now filled with violence and death. And here, at the village of Bethany, Jesus, having descended into death to undo it and then come out the other side into resurrection, now lifts his hands that are marked with his work to undo our curse. And he provides, once again, God's blessing, lavishes God's love, gives God's life to people that are doubting, dysfunctional, confused, and have every reason to assume they're a million miles away from God and hope in life. That's what you experience when you see what God's love has done in Jesus. There's a poignant moment in a favorite novel of mine that pictures this that I want to close by offering to you. There's a writer named Marilyn Robinson who wrote a number of years ago a Pulitzer-winning novel called Gilead. And it's a, it's a novel that's set in the town of Gilead, Iowa. And the main character is the narrator character is an old man who's a, who's a retired minister named John Ames. And the book consists of a series of fictional letters that he writes to his young son. He tells his own life story and the story of their town. And as he does so, he also tells the story of his best friend, who's another, another elderly, retired Presbyterian minister named Reverend Bowden. 
In the course of the letters, he, he talks about Reverend Bowton's son, who he actually named after John Ames. So Reverend Bowton named his little boy Jack. And Jack jo- grows up to become the town disgrace. He's continually getting in trouble even as a young child. And then as a teenager, he, he gets an impoverished girl in town pregnant and then abandons both her and her young son and skips town in complete shame. Well, that, little, that little guy only lives a few years before he passes away. And Jack stays away from Gilead for years and years in disgrace. But then, to the whole town's surprise, Jack turns up again, just as his father, Reverend Bowton, is on his deathbed. But just as his father is about to die, he's just overcome with heartbreak and his own shame, all that he knows is dysfunctional about his life, and so, so he, he decides he's going to leave town again. And John Ames hears word of this, and so he goes to meet Jack at the bus station at the edge of town as he's waiting for his bus that's going to take him away from Gilead again. And as they sit there together, John Ames offers some money for the trip to Jack, which he takes, and then, and then he asks him a question. I want you to watch what happens next. John Ames says, I said to Jack, Jack, the thing I would like actually before you go is to bless you. He shrugged. Well, what would that involve? Well, as I envisage it, it would involve my placing my hand on your brow and asking the protection of God for you. But if that would be embarrassing, there were a few people on the street. No, no, he said, that doesn't matter. And he took his hat off and set it on his knee and closed his eyes and lowered his head, almost rested it against my hand. And I did bless him to the limit of my powers, whatever they are, Repeating the benediction from Numbers, of course. The Lord, make his face to shine upon thee and be gracious unto thee. The Lord, lift up his countenance upon thee and give thee peace. Nothing could be more beautiful than that or more expressive of my feelings toward him or more sufficient for that matter. Then, when he didn't open his eyes or lift up his head, I said, Lord, bless John Ames Bowton, Jack, this beloved son and brother and husband and father. And he sat back and he looked at me as if he were waking out of a dream. Friends, that's just what God gives to us, to all of us who otherwise live in our own disgrace and shame, who assume that we're a million miles away from God. God lavishes his love on us blesses us with his life and goodness. This is what you experience when you come to see what love has done. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thanks for joining us at FPC. For more info and to connect with us, check out www.firstpresnpb.org.